0: diversity matters right so you know like this this idea of like thinking outside of the box right well if everybody is sort of used to thinking in one way you're never really going to get those fresh eyes that come with fresh ideas welcome to manufacturing happy hour the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers Happy each week We interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics,
1: and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's happening? Welcome to Episode 72 of Manufacturing Happy Hour. Today, we are talking about hiring diverse talent in manufacturing. And more importantly, we're talking about why your business could be at risk if you are not doing this. Our guest today is Justin Sherman. Justin is the founder of Equity Machine Works, SPC, a social enterprise committed to creating opportunity through support, training and employment for disadvantaged populations. Before we get rolling, I'm going to give you three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we're going to take a little time to get to know Justin. Justin has an interesting background in manufacturing that ultimately led him to creating Equity Machine Works. And that's going to be the second thing that we talk about. Near the 15-minute mark, we'll start getting into diversity in manufacturing, their program, and how they're partnering with different companies to level the playing field in manufacturing. Finally, we'll get into some pretty big stats around diversity in manufacturing and some simple actions that leaders can take to make sure their businesses are on the right track to future success. As always, you can access the show notes for these episodes at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 72 for all resources mentioned in this episode lastly i'll say if you're enjoying this content please consider leaving a five star rating and review over at apple podcasts it's been great seeing so many of you show up to leave your reviews provide some feedback it's certainly helping out as this show continues to grow and ramp up whether you're on your desktop or your iphone slash itunes will take you straight there with that let's get into this week's interview we're going to do something we haven't gotten to do as often here on the show so let's get ready to grab a drink with Justin Sherman. Okay, it's good to finally be doing one of these again on like a Friday afternoon where we can properly have some beverages. So actually, let me add some sound effect to this really quickly. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, got that, <laughs> got that captured in the mic. You already have a beer in hand though. Uh Justin, what are you drinking?
0: That's right. Yeah. So I mean I I've, I've poured it into a cup, uh but I'm drinking uh Elysian's Night Owl in uh mm. Spooky Season.
1: Yeah. That's a good one. I am uh not necessarily spooky season per se for those listening. We're recording this uh right before Halloween weekend, but it is a rainy, dreary day here in Milwaukee, so nothing better than uh like a good dark beer. So I've got a mud puppy porter from uh, where do you call this uh central waters brewing up near central wisconsin as you get to appleton so right. uh, p- pairing with the rain today but in addition to what we have in front of us right now if we were having this conversation over a beverage in your hometown of the the greater seattle area where might be we where might we be doing that right now
0: well i gotta say i'm uh typically a fan of relatively bougie spaces coming out of seattle i enjoy some some (laughs) high-class hipster fare i would say uh quinn's pub in uh, the capitol hill area is is just a beautiful gastro pub uh and they've got all kinds of like amazing plates uh my favorite there has got to be uh the bone marrow like bone marrow and toast
1: Mm. it does sound good for uh for a day like this as well it'll probably go well with the the porter i'm having right now if i had to take a guess
0: multi beers we're drinking today
1: it's uh it's been a while since i've been to capitol hill right like there's is there still like a unicorn bar there or something like that am i yes. making that up what what's uh, it indeed, called yeah it uh,
0: i think it's unicorn lounge okay. uh but yeah i've been there a few times
1: yeah it's they they have very uh, interesting drinks there. i think there's an arcade in the basement like called the norwall or something like that as yeah. well um yeah. it is honestly it's been ages since i've been out there i'm planning to go next year to see my st louis blues take on the seattle kraken in uh in some hockey so
0: all right well when you make it you can count on having the tour
1: guide all right well i'll be hitting you up when i get out there but today let's say we're having those beverages and that bone marrow at quinn's pub and i heard you mention this on a couple of the other podcasts you've been on i've heard you on making chips. I've heard you on the manufacturing executive with Joe Sullivan, one of our past guests of the show. And one of the earliest things you said in that latter interview with Joe was that manufacturers are at risk of going out of business if they don't hire diverse talent. So let's say someone asks you that question if you're hanging out at a spot like Quinn's Pub. uh, Why is that the case? How do you answer that?
0: It's simple demographics. The, The world is changing. Um, you know, looking at high school graduating classes, uh, in 1995, nationally, uh, 73% white was the graduating class. In 2025, graduating class is gonna be 51% white. And that trend is gonna continue. And so one of the big challenges that we have in manufacturing right now is that diversity is very, very underrepresented, whether that's by, by gender or race, sexual orientation, etc., cetera, especially by gender. I mean, if we look at like skilled positions like machinists and welders, both of those positions are about 95% male. Um, and when we're looking at a skills gap where we've got tons and tons of open, open positions, we're looking at the silver tsunami coming, tons and tons of retirements, meaning more open positions that we need to get filled. We need to be able to access the largest labor pool possible. And if we're not doing enough work, to attract diverse and emerging talent we're really not going to succeed in filling those jobs and that and that really comes down to you know both you know diversity but also you know being able to attract younger generations which has been on the mind of folks for quite a while right and uh that's where you know folks like your, yourself and i and, and and drew and will healy and and jay call kind of like step in to try to like fill that gap try to make make manufacturing sexy again talk about how you know cool these jobs are and and speak as folks from a younger generation to folks coming up uh as you know an example of you know what's possible right um so you know it but if you're not succeeding in doing that you're going to fail uh and, and be eaten up by businesses that do succeed absolutely
1: point. yeah and, and I think, you know, you mentioned some names on there, Jay Call, Andrew Crow, he was back on episode 46. So for the folks out there listening today, this is not the first time we've covered this topic on the show. And I'm looking forward to to diving into some of those stats that you mentioned. Like you mentioned, 95% male right now. To me, that's pretty alarming. Interested to hear other things you're seeing. But as the founder of Equity Machine Works, I want to hear a bit about your story as well, too, because I've listened. I've heard you before. I don't necessarily know how your career got started, right? Because you were working with a sheet metal fabricator as your first gig, correct? Am I making that up?
0: Correct. Yeah, uh, KLW Manufacturing and Design out of Arlington, Washington. That was uh, that was my my first manufacturing job, and that actually happened, uh, you know, after a, a couple of years working in the gaming industry—not uh, uh, video gaming industry, but casino games rather. So I was mm. a poker dealer for a little bit after. Um, about a year and a half of of junior college and I had to kind of drop out due to some family issues and try to kind of like figure my way forward and I got offered an opportunity to kind of start as an informal apprentice uh, at KLW. So KLW was purchasing a local machine shop that was going out of business and they were hiring the owner of that machine shop to come in and run things and they needed somebody to to step in and I got given the chance and and so, you know, quite literally, my first day on the job was the first time I had seen a CNC machine in my life. And it was uh, perspective shifting, to say the least, uh, because when you're coming from that consumer mindset, you don't really understand how anything is made, really. And, and so now I'm finally getting the chance to. And it was incredibly interesting. And I saw this kind of like mountain of, of knowledge to climb is like what I like to sort of think of it as. And, and that became something that was... Um, I don't know, really, really spurred me, right? Kind of like lit a fire under me. Uh, any, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little ADD, but anytime I try to, or I jump into something, I'm kind of like head first, all in, right? Yeah. I, I want to learn everything there is about it. And, uh, and and so I really took that on and, and started excelling really quickly. Um, as soon as uh, I got the chance to start programming, uh, I jumped in, that was about a year and a half in or so. Um, we we'd lost our programmer and, didn't really have many options and I saw a chance to sort of, you know, raise my hand and, you know, say like, hey, give me a shot. Right. Uh, you know, wor- worst case, I, I, I screwed up and you're in the same position that you were before, but I'm telling you, I will not. And uh, yeah, I, I really kind of dove headfirst into all of that, did as much research as I could, started uh, researching high speed machining techniques and, and quite literally with like next to no investment other than unlocking, you know, adapted tool paths and, and our programming software. Uh, was able to start making parts about three times faster than my predecessors were. And that made me stand out a lot. And, and, you know, one of the, uh, one of the principles that I really sort of adhered myself to both in life and in manufacturing was Kaizen, right, this idea of mm-hmm. constant mm-hmm. improvement, constantly looking at, you know, myself and our operations and trying to be better than we were the day before, over and over again. And that, that kind of, worked, I guess, not kind of, really worked well in my favor and, and propelled me into management within the next year and a half and uh, did that for the next uh, next couple of years, uh, helping, helping grow KLW manufacturing or, and, and design and then uh, got introduced to the Aerospace Joint Apprenticeship Committee, which is a registered apprenticeship in Washington State. They came in and um, presented to our company. I really loved what they were doing and I wanted to figure out a way to give back in some way and as well as kind of challenge some of my own personal uh uh my personal challenges at the time so you know you may have seen me speaking in a few different places and might not really pick up on the fact that I'm actually typically very nervous when I jump into any sort of speaking and in high school uh I was the kid who almost wanted to pass out when it was time to give presentations right and here I was a young leader and get a shaky voice when it was time to, you know, give presentations to the company or have like bigger company meetings. And I really, really didn't like that about myself. And, and I saw a way to kind of kill two birds with one stone, which was to, you know, teach classes as, Mm -hmm. as, as well as, you know, uh, that would give back and also challenge those, those issues that I was having. And, um, I, uh, (laughs) I sort of courted them for a little bit and they brought me in for a teaching demonstration which was kind of just a 15 minute teaching lesson on machining principles and um i i i kid you not like i almost blacked out during during that teaching demonstration uh, had the black don't, don't black don't, don't black bit. out on today's show
1: people might think that's no, 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 caused no, by a, something different
0: then <laughs> well i've at least had a beer so you know i'm uh, yeah yeah you're feeling yeah, good the, the edge has been broken um and so I let, charisma kind of carried me through that. So they had no idea that that was what was the experience on the inside, I guess. And, uh, I ended up getting offered a full-time job instead of the the part-time job teaching night like, classes that I was going for. And so I spent some time really thinking about that and decided, you know, like, all right, like I'm not going to let myself fail regardless of what the consequences are. And so I'm going to take this thing on. And, uh, and so I decided to, and it went really, really well. My first class was four hours long and, uh, I, I Tell you, I was quite nervous going into that, but about mm-hmm. 20 minutes in, I really hit my stride. And then, you know, I was kind of all she wrote after that. It uh, kept picking up. I got promoted twice in the next six months into program management, uh, managing uh, Ajax pre-apprenticeship program called, uh, oh, pardon, Manufacturing Academy. Uh, and that was a program that was targeting dislocated workers and out of school youth, teaching mm-hmm. like remedial math and then basic manufacturing skills, To you know, help them acquire entry level jobs in the field, and so I really got to look at uh, the inside of you know what, not just what delivering those programs look like from a teaching perspective, but also what it took to build them out and Mm -hmm. have all the partner conversations and get funding, and and also a lot of what the limitations were around grants because you know, for example, WIOA, WIOA, the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act, is -hmm. how a lot of these training programs are funded. And they are forced to target dislocated workers. And a dislocated worker is, uh, I guess, you know, by definition, someone who either has their benefits expired or is about to have them expire. And that was one of the big challenges that we were facing with trying to bring folks in to go through this program, which was typically from 11 to 13 weeks long, depending on the location and what we were delivering. And... You know, when you're asking somebody to come in for that long, who's already in a very disadvantaged position and they don't have incoming resources, Mm -hmm. that's a huge barrier. And on top of that, grant funds don't really create sustainable programs unless you're able to create some sort of secondary revenue source to kind of shore those programs up. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the challenges is you kind of always have to be ready to kind of close the doors on a location or a program uh, just in case, you know, funding ends
1: I've got a couple of questions that, that have popped up in here. So I'm starting to, I'm starting to get a feel of how, you know, point a starting in machining might've led you to the path of, of what got you to equity machine works. I I feel like we've got some, some ground to cover before we get there though. But if I heard you right much earlier on, I think you, you basically said you didn't necessarily come up in a manufacturing background, right? It wasn't until you got into it that, uh, that you knew what a CNC was. And it took me even longer to figure out what that was, has was that one of the moments that shaped what you think brought you to realizing the need for something like
0: equity machine works and and what you're doing on your current mission? Absolutely. So that's, that's absolutely one of the critical components. Um, You know, when we're thinking about, uh, you know, diverse and disadvantaged populations, Uh, various networks and their disconnections or interconnections if they are there Um, my experience growing up very much plays into that so I grew up in Everett Washington and Mm -hmm. you that are listening might know Everett Washington is home of one of the biggest Boeing plants is still actually home to the biggest building by volume in the world and I was a mile mile and a half away from that plant but even yeah. then right even then i hadn't had any real exposure to what manufacturing really was mm-hmm. and so, when we're thinking about you know populations that exist much further away from any networks that are attached to manufacturing at all like having any real connection any ability to sort of break into manufacturing it's just not there and so when we're thinking about you know historically how manufacturing went from Uh, very much kind of like blowing up in big cities like Detroit and St. Louis, Mm -hmm. et cetera, to then uh, suburbanizing and getting pushed out into the suburbs during times where there was, you know, lots of white flight, et cetera, et cetera. We ended up with a very sort of like homogenous looking culture with disconnected networks from, you know, populations that could otherwise help fill a lot of the gaps for us. And so it really behooves us today to really, be intentional about making those connections now. Uh,
1: so what, one one question I have then on top of this was, and, and I know you've got your story going on, so you might be covering this soon, but sure. was there a moment that led you from what you were doing to realize, hey, I need to create something like Equity Machine Works?
0: Yes, um, a couple moments. So while I was at AJAC, and I'm realizing what the various limitations are around sustainability, you know, for for revenue, et cetera, et cetera. I got introduced to the social enterprise model um, through a couple local organizations, which are really great. I highly recommend folks check them out: uh, Orion mm-hmm. Industries, Skills Inc., and Pioneer Industries. They're all social enterprises that operate as manufacturing organizations that incorporate workforce development with community connectedness, whichever whatever that might be. And so. Uh, for Orion and Skills Inc., they're focused on uh, disabled workers, and uh, for Pioneer Industries, they're focused on those that's uh, I, I previously incarcerated talent. What mm-hmm. I would say. Um, and I really wanted to be able to sort of set something like that up for AJAC, um, but you know, unfortunately, we we were not able to acquire the funds. And then, you know, later on that year, I I got a divorce and I had to make more money, and that meant going back into industry. Um, and then the second big moment I would say was, you know, a couple of years after, I guess my, my sort of like awakening to, uh, you know, the, the challenges of, of others um, was IMTS 2018. Um, I, I got to go to IMTS 2018 while I was at KLW and I'm, you know, walking around the, sh- the, the expo floor taking a look at all the stuff. But, you know, one of the things that I couldn't help but notice was that essentially almost everybody that was there that was looking at machines was somebody that looked like me, though typically much mm-hmm. older, right? E- even then- even
1: now in 2021, late 2021, I still feel like that's the same. I, lo- I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm a little more observant now, but, we still got a long way to go. And I I know that plays into your story as well.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, the, on the other hand of it, you know, take a look at the folks that were the event staff and the folks that were, were serving us in the, you know, in the lunch hall, right. Every single person that was serving us was, was black. And it was, to me, it was like, okay, like how, like back then, and, and one of the big reasons I got into communicating about this stuff was like, nobody was really talking about any of it. And we kept talking about the skills gap as if it were just like purely a generational issue. And, and I'm looking around, I was like, well, you know, we can't pretend that this isn't a problem, right? Like, we, we can see it right in front of us. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we have to take responsibility for its existence, right? But, but we can see what it is. And we all have collectively the power to do something about it. And, and so that was sort of, sort of one of the bigger moments for me that you know, told me that something needed to happen at some point. I wasn't in a position then to really do much about it, but you know, I guess continuing on my story, uh, you know, I, I, I left AJAC and went to Intellectual Ventures where I got to work as a scientific instrument maker on lots of like next-gen technology, uh, nuclear technology for t- TerraPower. Uh, first run prototypes for medical devices that get deployed to third world countries. Super, super meaningful work. Um, Did that for about three years before moving on to a large tech company where I worked as a managed service manager, um, managing a, a large prototyping team in their advanced prototyping center. And, and, and I very much saw a lot of the same things, you know, there. Right. And, uh, and and eventually with, with COVID and sort of thinking about, okay, you know, what, you know, what, what am I doing here? What's the value of my work? And I was thinking, okay, like, you know, this, this work is amazing. The, the people that I'm surrounded with are brilliant, but at the same time, you know, I make, I'm helping make electronics for affluent populations. And I'm still kind of seeing all the same problems that, that have existed. And not really a whole lot being done about it, and then the more that I thought about it, and I had my partner kind of getting on my case, and she was, you know, like, have you thought about the social enterprise idea? And I was like, well, you know, I'm not really sure. And then it all just started kind of piecing together. And then mm-hmm. I don't know if you uh, if you've ever had that moment where you get that sort of like washing sense of relief when you have that like moment of clarity, right? When everything just just comes together. And so um, that happened for me. And so I put together a succession plan and. Um, started piecing together Equitable Machine Works and, you know, here here we are today. So I I left my my very cush job in January and I've been doing this stuff ever since.
1: We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Concept Systems, who you can find at conceptsystemsinc.com. Concept Systems is an independent systems integrator and your automation solution partner for anything from antiquated control system retrofits to greenfield controls, coordination, and project management. Whether it's process or discrete control, Concept Systems has been doing this for over 20 years. They've partnered with best in class companies like Rockwell Automation and Fanuc to conceptualize, design, and build automation systems that include everything like robotics, vision systems and manufacturing intelligence solutions personally i've been familiar with concept systems for a couple years now and i have to say i'm a huge fan of the amazing team they have over there with national presence across the u.s they have application experience in more than just a few industries including food and beverage aerospace automotive building products and metals just to name a few If you have a project coming up requiring an automation solution partner or even a main automation contractor, head over to ConceptSystemsInc.com and get in touch. They take an extremely methodical, risk-mitigating approach to project management that allows you to hit your project timelines and keep focusing on your core business. Oh. And if you want to hear a bit more about Concept Systems, make sure to check out Episode 7 of Manufacturing Happy Hour, which is our panel discussion on smart manufacturing, featuring Concept Systems' very own Director of Sales and Marketing, Ryan Wasmond. And now, back to today's episode. Well, I'm excited to learn a bit more about Equity Machine Works. By the way, thank, thanks for being so open about your story as well. Mm-hmm. We covered a lot of ground there. You mentioned some specific moments where it seems like this has been something that's been building up throughout your career. And I'm excited to hear and learn more about it. So let's, let's go back to Quinn's Pub really quickly. Same way you'd answer yeah. this question over a drink. <laughs> Describe right. what Equity Machine Works does in the simplest way possible.
0: All right, simplest way possible, which is something that <clears throat> I often have a challenge with because I I get very wordy as I'm I'm doing uh, talking about anything I'm passionate about. But
1: it's it's a common thing in our industry. You don't have to apologize for yeah. it. <laughs> we can we can, we can go on and on about the stuff we love doing.
0: So e- Equity Machine Works, if you imagine you know a, a precision machining shop and think sort of contract manufacturer, also do you know production runs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that incorporates a community-connected workforce development program. And so the the steps for us are connecting with community partners um, who help bring in, you know, potential talent that are looking for an opportunity, they're ready for an opportunity, and then creating subsidized supports for them along that path. So you might remember me mentioning, you know, 11 to 13 weeks, folks that don't have any resources as they're going through that period. Well, we're using a a margin... Are a portion of our margin to subsidize uh, things like affordable housing food access transportation access during that period and then when they land with us uh, they start a one-year ojt program they become registered apprentices with one of our apprenticeship partners which we have two uh, and then there's a one-year ojt program that incorporates classes both from the apprenticeship organization as well as on-site classes that'll range from things you know like like shop-specific skills, but also life skills. And through that one-year period of time, they'll go through the the basics of operation into setup and then potentially, you know, at the tail end, get into into some programming. And then at the end, receive placement services uh, with one of our partners. Uh, And we have some placement partners, but as well as, you know, industry partners that are looking to get access to a diverse hiring stream and making sure that they make specific you know, policy commitments so that we're sending folks to a place that's you know, really ready to accept them, right? Mm. That they're not gonna be going someplace that you know, doesn't see them for who they are or doesn't you know, see color, for example, but rather sees them, their struggles, supports them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and, and that'll work really well in a few ways, right? It'll help diversify the industry. It'll help create diversity of thought uh, within the organizations in which they land and help really kind of work as a proof of concept for folks. So, uh, Equity Machine Works is not gonna be operating as a nonprofit. We're gonna be operating as a social purpose company, which is a social, pur- or which is a, a for-profit corporation that has a social mission in mind. And the idea there is to show everybody it, that you can do this, you can become community connected, you can remain very prof- profitable during this time, And you can subsidize a lot of the things that, frankly, like government hasn't really been doing a very good job of, right? Um, But doing it in a way that ties it in with, you know, with skills training and and a career that, you know, develops into self-sustenance so that folks have that kind of stable base. If you think sort of like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Like Mm -hmm. if food, water, shelter are not taken care of and that is not stable, like none of the other work up here is ever going to be successful, right? So that's... That's kind of the idea behind Equity Machine Works is making sure that we make sure that folks are stable throughout that path and they're able to sort of start building into that second space and and be self-sustaining by the time they finish.
1: A couple things I want to ask about here. One, just for the audience out there. So Social Purpose Company, SPC, I was wondering what that was before this interview. So always good to have that acronym check. I think that makes a lot of sense for what you're doing, right? Because I think when many people think about diversity they do think about hey what programs are there what nonprofits are there to potentially help out with this but you have created a for-profit company that will help address this issue um, what, one question you know not not really a question so but as we get into some of these other discussion points I want to make sure we define diversity right for the sake of this conversation because you've mentioned it's not just gender it's not just race you talked about the other social enterprise there that helped, Disabled workers specifically, previously incarcerated. Are there other areas? What what other areas would should we thinking about as someone that touches this every day?
0: Uh, veterans and, and, and sexual identity, absolutely.
1: So we've got that definition. I do. I want to broaden it, right? Because I feel like on this show, a lot of times we talk about it many times. Or I shouldn't even just say on this show, right? When many times in industry we kind of make it, let's say, more simple than it is. But diversity is a wide range of topics as well. You know, we talked earlier, uh, you mentioned 95% of the industry is male right now. I mean, do you have other statistics? For for machinists and welders. For machinists Uh, and welders. Got it. Correct. Other other statistics that jump out that highlight some of the criticality of
0: the issues we're facing right now. Pulling off the top of my head is, I think it's something like overall for manufacturing is something like 21 or 24% female, Um, but that also pulls in. You know, say like soft goods manufacturers, right? And soft goods manufacturers typically have you know something near parity for male male to female um, gender representation, not in leadership roles, but but mm-hmm. as far as the, the workforce goes. But when we get into hard like durable goods, specifically you know precision machine goods, which has been the background that I've come up in we see, you know, I think what we're used to seeing when we go to, you know, places like IMTS, you know, when we're walking around, we see, you know, most everybody be, you know, older white male. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's not anything against any of those men at all, but it does create a lot of challenges when we're talking about trying to attract folks into our, into our industry that don't see themselves represented. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's really about trying to do the work to make space, and then attracting folks in, and then as that continues to build up, you know, we'll we'll, I guess we'll we'll experience that snowball effect of sorts, right?
1: Yeah, ju- Justin. Another question that came up that, at least in my mind, I'm thinking if there are other manufacturing out leaders out there listening to this, you mentioned you partner with companies that are ready to accept diverse talent. Can you share what characterizes a place that is? let's say, ready to accept diverse talent or one places where diverse talent can thrive. Because if I'm listening to this and I'm trying to think of what are the things that I can do to be a solution to this problem? I think that could really give give the folks not to say it, not to oversimplify it and say a checklist, but some things to think of, of what makes my environment a place where
0: diverse talent can thrive. So that's, that's a really great question. And there's not any sort of like hard specific answer, but there's Mm -hmm. sort of like a few starting points, you know, first off is acknowledging that there's a, there's an issue, right? Seeing the evidence that's out there saying, yes, there's a problem here. And then asking the question, what can I do to learn more? What can I do to, to change our policies, to change our approach to then uh, attract talent, right? And then what that looks like from there is education community connection so that looks a little bit different depending on what region folks are in um often there's a lot of various programs around like if you're in the midwest and specifically in chicago there's a ton of opportunities in chicago to connect with uh you know community-minded organizations that are out there that you know will help bring you know diverse talent in um, but also making specific policy changes that help recognize the individual, because that's one of the, I mean, core expectations, not just of diverse talent, but also emerging talent. So mm-hmm. Industry Week recently did their survey. They, uh, it was towards the end of September that they released those results, and they found that Gen Z's number one like, core issue or core expectation when they're looking out at different companies to work for are diversity and inclusion initiatives. And those are important for a variety of reasons, but doing the work to connect and make some changes. And that looks a few different ways, right? Like maybe instead of having sort of like the, the core national holidays, right, which if we look sort of look at them historically, are very sort of focused on, you know, Christian holidays that are celebrated by the white population predominantly, right? Mm-hmm. So you could then instead change your policy to something that looks more like, you know, floating holidays for folks so that they have the opportunity to take off the time that's, you know, relevant to them. Right. Um, flexible working, things like subsidized supports for things like, you know, childcare, you know, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of companies do a really great job when it comes to transportation access. If they're in a region that, say, has public transportation in this region. Uh, an orca card goes a really long way for folks. Right. company has to pay a hundred dollars a month, not really a huge expense. And that gives somebody access to bus transport all month long. Right. Uh, Childcare. So folks that are our parents, particularly if they're single parents. Right. Like I've been a single parent. That is a really challenging position to be in, particularly if you're resource starved. Right. So. You know, somebody is going to really like they're going to have a hard time coming in for a specific schedule if they don't have childcare arranged. And sometimes that can be really hard to afford. And so if you're able to make like not equal, but equitable sort of like targeted subsidies for folks that are in need of them, that can help give you access to a much larger talent pool than you might otherwise have access to. And and getting into you know some of the other stats that you and I were talking about earlier before the show, which is, you know, what are the performance numbers for, for companies that have more diverse rep- representation, which mm-hmm. means more diverse thought, right, mm-hmm. in that space, and and they're they're quite big actually. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this up so I'm not uh, trying to uh, pull them. Go up for it. I, I like
1: that we can hear the keys. It means you're researching right in the middle oh, of this yes. to, to get the facts. Well, while you're looking at it, I'll just highlight a couple things that stuck out that that I'd like to reiterate for the folks listening, like that Gen Z is ranking this as one of their top priorities. What diversity initiatives do you have in place? All of a sudden, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, but the reality is getting diverse talent, getting young talent, a lot of that ties together. Um, The other thing is like, I think, and and maybe it was uh, Drew Crow and one of his other Interviews that he's done with you before, where you talk about, hey, compensation is not just about um, the 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 money itself, right? It's having those transportation programs. It could be something like housing as well as that provided as part of it. Childcare you highlighted, like these are the things that you know. If you don't have diverse talent, you're not going to think to yourself, is this an issue for other people? So a lot of great points you're bringing up there. But you look like you found those stats now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it back over to you. <laughs>
0: I, I did, but my mind is taking a brief tangent.
1: Okay, go for that. Let's do that. Thinking
0: about organizational culture. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest barriers that we have to attracting diverse and emerging talent is our sort of typical kind of command and control type of structure, right? Mm-hmm. So I think many of us have stories in you know, shop floor stories with... With bosses who were you know very aggressive i mean i I definitely have a whole whole host and every single machinist that i've ever talked to has a few of their own where you know there's very aggressive and controlling leaders in the space and that can function for efficiency relatively well in the right environment but that can be very like excluding to certain folks especially if they're coming in and they're not seeing anybody else that looks like them already the way that that's going to come across is maybe you know targeted aggression right and and it really doesn't work very well. And when we're talking about Gen Z, one of the things that they want most is person-centric leadership, right? Folks that see them. And this is this plays into when we're talking about like equitable, sort of like targeted subsidy programs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this this idea of uh, a, approaching kind of the, the workspace, kind of people first, and that means kind of changing a few things and making things a little bit more flexible and. Thanks to COVID, uh, I guess, you know, silver lining there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been given the opportunity to learn how to create hybrid workspaces. You know, mm-hmm. It doesn't work so well for folks that need to operate the machines, right? We need them at the machines when they need to be at the machines. But in a lot of other positions like programming positions, planning positions, purchasing, uh, HR, you know, essentially anything that has the ability to sort of like work in a hybrid sort of setting mm-hmm. That can create a lot of opportunity for accessing diverse talent as well, right? So, um, you know, say, you know, maybe childcare arrangements means somebody cannot be available on site two days a week, but they can still functionally functionally like, um, you know, deliver on all their deliverables. Like hybrid working works really well, and mm-hmm. and taking a person centric approach or something you know commonly looked at as sort of like servant leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, there's tons and tons of reading material out there. Definitely take a look because not only is it going to make, you know, your work life uh, feel a lot more functional and less conflict filled, but it's also going to give you access to more talent, right? And so that's one of those things that a lot of companies can really take the step forward on um, is, is looking into sort of shifting away from command and control to something that's more person-centric. And and they'll see that sort of pay out in spades. I mean, folks, like, I guess one of the big big millennial tropes, and 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 this sort of passes on to, you know, the generations that are younger than us, Mm -hmm. um, is that like we're job hoppers. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think one of the big reasons are not only sort of the shift in sort of economics around things, but also, you know, this, this command and control kind of structure when it's like, all right, like I've got access to go work wherever I want. Right. We're in the middle of a skills gap, Mm -hmm. everybody wants me. So if I want to go work somewhere else and they're going to treat me a lot better, and maybe, maybe they'll only pay me the same, but they're going to treat me so much more, and they're going to give me flexible work options. Well, I'm going to jump ship, and I'm going to go there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that, that is sort of the, the common sense piece of it. Um, but to the numbers, so uh, McKinsey studies uh, put on by um, McKinsey and Deloitte. So, why diversity matters. Companies are 15% more likely to generate above-average ad- profitability, uh, companies with more racially and ethnically diverse employees have 35% performance advantage versus companies relying on culture fit, and companies with gender diverse executive teams in the highest quartile outperform male dominated companies by 21% in terms of EBIT, so earnings before interest and in taxes. And this is because thought diversity matters, right? So, you know, like this this idea of like thinking outside of the box, right? Well if everybody is sort of used to thinking in one way, you're never really going to get those fresh eyes that come with fresh ideas. Right. And those fresh ideas lead to innovations that lead to higher profitability. Um, And, you know, often I think one of the big kind of like gender separators for like male and female leaders are sort of kind of specific to, uh, I guess, are like historically, um, like kind of traditional roles. And, and it really comes down to kind of like leading with empathy, right? This person-centric kind of leadership. Mm-hmm. This person-centric leadership today works way better than command and control ever did. I mm. so, highly recommend jumping well, into that.
1: Well, another thing I like about what you said where you started highlighting the hybrid work models is if there are any doubters to whether that works in manufacturing, back in episode 59, we actually did a whole episode on how hybrid work models can succeed in the manufacturing world. So if you're listening, you're trying to figure out how to create that diverse pipeline, that diverse workforce of talent. There are certainly other resources we have on this show for for folks to go back into. Justin, as we get towards the end of our conversation, I do want to ask <laughs> you, work, uh, well, I mean, we, we could talk about this all day long. And really, I, by the way, I, I have a call to action for the audience. I mean, if Have conversations like this. We're doing this for a podcast, but there's no reason everyone else out there should not be having discussions around this to learn more, right? That's one of the first, you mentioned acknowledging the situation, right? Like acknowledging that we do need more diverse talent. Having these conversations is one of the ways to make that happen. On that note, Justin, you have a lot of conversations around this. I've mentioned multiple times the other shows you've been on talking about this before, is there a question around this topic you wish more people were asking you or something more people should be thinking about that maybe goes under the radar not not to anyone's fault but just something that doesn't pop up as naturally in the diversity conversation?
0: Um I mean I would say we're kind of touching on it quite a bit, right? One of the one of the major reasons that I I felt so compelled to kind of jump into this space and start doing this work was specifically because there wasn't a lot of conversation around it happening, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, the big thing that I, I keep trying to sort of like help bring about is just that first step, acknowledging, right? Acknowledging that there is a challenge here and that it can really do a lot of work to help solve our skills gap, but also help, you know, I guess, promote a lot of the healing that, you know, community needs and, and connect the networks that have been so long disconnected. And, and folks often have the question of, you know, like, where, where do I start? You know, what do I do? And I mentioned earlier that there's not any sort of like a one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. solution to things. But there are some resources out there. And I want to point one out here. So I'm going to hold this up for everybody. But um, hopefully we can link this. Uh, Hiring for Diversity. This is written by Arthur Woods. And this is... Um, a a great place to begin. It gives you all kinds of wonderful tips around various different populations, things that you ought to do, things that you definitely shouldn't do, um, ways that you can sort of design your processes to make sure that they're equitable, et cetera, et cetera, and give you a really good space to start from. As well as, um, you know, at the end of each chapter, they include a, a whole host of resources for you to kind of follow up in. And, you know, if there's anywhere that you feel like you don't feel particularly informed on, you want to do extra research that all the resources are there for you to do that.
1: Excellent. Hiring for Diversity by Author Woods. You know, everyone out here, uh, any regular listener or first time listener, we've got the show notes page over at ManufacturingHappyHour.com. We will link up to that book in the notes. Justin, what's next on the horizon for uh, um, for Equity Machine Works?
0: Yeah, so uh, opening of physical doors. So we're looking at you know within the next few months actually launching our physical operations. We've secured uh, a few different major industry partnerships, um, a number of local partnerships, and we're really ready now, I guess, to you know pull the funding in, start hiring, bringing folks in, getting the program running. Um, more more speaking engagements. So I've got more podcasts coming up, more events to speak at. Uh, the recent you know. Topshop Expo was a really great opportunity to shake hands with lots of folks. And uh, you'll you'll be seeing my face around a little bit more. So I highly recommend just uh, give me a follow on LinkedIn and uh, you'll you'll see what's coming.
1: We will be linking up to all the ways to connect with Justin and Equity Machine Works over at the show notes as well. Or you can get there by going to equitymachine.works. That's that's the one, right?
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: All right. We'll have that Equity
0: linked machine up. Works. Yeah, doing it modern no more dot coms
1: yeah exactly no way finding ways to modernize this initiative as best you can you're doing a great job justin great work you're doing out there i've been excited for this conversation for a while uh big topic to cover also excited to to grab a beer with you virtually it's something that despite the show being called manufacturing happy hour there hasn't been a lot of happy hour on it lately thanks for bringing us back around (laughs) to everyone else out there listening stay innovative stay thirsty Catch you again next time. Hey, thanks for listening, and thank you, Justin, for taking the time to jump on today's podcast. i got to give a shout-out to the other manufacturing podcasts out there that gave me so much good content to prepare for this interview. Again, Manufacturing Executive, hosted by Joe Sullivan, and then the crew over at Making Chips, These are two of the best manufacturing podcasts out there. If you love this show, guaranteed you would like those as well. We mentioned a number of great resources in this episode, and as we said, you can find those over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 72 to access anything from Arthur Wood's book, Hiring for Diversity, or Quinn's Pub if you happen to find yourself in Seattle. One last reminder that if you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving your feedback over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes in the form of a five-star rating in review. doesn't need to be long. I've said it before. It just needs to be a couple sentences, but that feedback always helps, helps get us on the map, and it helps us pick the direction of the content that we do in the future. Again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. Last but not least, shout out to all the wonderful sponsors of Manufacturing Happy Hour, Concept Systems, our systems integration partner, Gen Alpha, our e-commerce partner, and one of our newer sponsors, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. These folks all help keep the show going and help us create more and more quality content for you to enjoy. So, as always, we truly couldn't do it without them. And that's it for this week. You know we have more great interviews coming up. So, we'll catch you again next time. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.